listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 172 of Belaboured. Today, we're going to talk about the Green New Deal and how labor can embrace it and other policies to, you know, save us from climate catastrophe. But first, the news. We've talked about unpaid internships and intern organizing here on this show quite a bit, but never quite like this. Currently, in the Canadian province of Quebec, over 35,000 students are on strike against unpaid internships. This builds on the 2012 student strikes in Quebec that saw students shut down the cities over student fee hikes. I spoke with one of the student organizers about the intern strikes. So my name is uh, Sandrine Bellé. I'm a student in social work, and uh, I'm uh, striking. Uh, I am at uh, UCAM, Université du Québec à Montréal. And yeah, we are striking right now for paid internships because we realized that uh, internships in uh, predominantly women fields are never paid when uh, one in the predominantly masculine fields are almost always paid and at a really good rate. How many students are on strike and how long has the strike been going on right now? The strike has been going on uh, for two weeks. Uh, right now, there is approximately uh, 25,000 students. Uh, last week, there was uh, approximately 35,000 students on strike. Uh, and um, uh, there will be votes uh, to uh, reconduct the strike uh, tomorrow and on Friday. But the campaign has been going on for almost three years now. Uh, we have been striking for days and weeks in a week last semester. And so when was the first strike around internships? The first strike was in uh, autumn 2016, uh, but the first one was uh, a strike for the psychology students. Uh, because when they did the internship, they weren't paid, but they they were focusing on the opposition between them and the uh, medicine internships. So that uh, that field of studies is as important as medicine. And that's mm -hmm. uh, when we started organizing by saying it's not that uh, some fields are uh, more important or that uh, their, their internships are actually work and some others don't. It's that all internships mm -hmm. are work, but uh, some of them are devalued. And they are devalued because uh, it's reproductive work done by women. And that is why it is devalued. And so for our listeners in the U.S. who aren't familiar with uh, the tradition of student striking in Quebec, tell us what it looks like this week to have that many students on strike at different schools. It really depends on each campus, uh, but basically uh, students stop going to their classes. Uh, some of them are speaking line outside of the school. Others uh, went from classes to schools, from classes to classes. Uh, to tell the students to uh, go out of the class. But the, the, yeah. what is new uh, on this track is that we also do that with the internship. And uh, the oh. part with that was that uh, we don't know where are all the internships. So what we did mm -hmm. is that we made a kind of the, uh, a letter to say that we are going to try, and we made mm -hmm. everybody sign with their uh, internship. And we are going from uh, on the internship where students work uh, to show the, uh, that there is a strike that is that it is collective. It is not, it is not a personal decision mm -hmm. not to go to the internship. 
And uh, yeah. we talked to the workers there who tried to get their solidarity. Uh, and actually, uh, there, there has been a lot of uh, repression on the mm -hmm. students who are striking. Uh, but uh, that technique really helped us. Uh, to get the solidarity of the workers and uh, to put pressure on the places that didn't want uh, to mm -hmm. take back the intern after the strike. Across the country, the consequences of the Trump administration's war on labor protections are starting to reveal their first casualties. A study of federal data from workplaces overseen by the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration shows that workplaces seem to be getting deadlier under Trump a first sign that the administration's effort to dismantle health and safety protections has led to preventable deaths from accident and injury at work. The data paint a picture of two years of malign neglect at OSHA, the chief federal authority for preventing workers from getting maimed, poisoned, abused, or killed at work. Although the data only covers workplaces officially under the jurisdiction of OSHA and so exempts various state-run OSHA programs and some types of work-related fatality like traffic deaths, the National Employment Law Project, which conducted the study, found a rise in worker deaths at OSHA-covered workplaces between fiscal years 2017 and 2018, from 837 to 929. When researchers assessed overall enforcement activity in terms of enforcement units, which are a factor of complexity and frequency of each inspection, they discovered a steady decline in the intensity of enforcement. So from fiscal years 2016 to 2017, federal OSHA enforcement units fell from 42,900 to 41,829, and the most recent data for 2018 show that enforcement has continued to decline. Inspections of workplace hazards that were involving the top category of work-related illness, which is musculoskeletal disorders, tumbled by two-thirds. OSHA's staff has also been steadily shrinking since the Reagan administration from more than 1,000 in 1982 to 952 in 2016, and as of 28, down to a 48-year low of 875 personnel. The drop seems largely a function of attrition and stagnation, not funding cuts, because the budget has basically stayed level from year to year under Trump. Debbie Berkowitz of the National Employment Law Project says that the decrease in staffing reflects a broader agenda to weaken the agency and all federal labor protections in general. The fact is that OSHA is a small agency in the federal government. It's about one-seventh the size of the Environmental Protection Agency. And the other thing I think that it's important is all that workers have when it comes to an agency to enforce the law that employers have to provide a safe workplace is OSHA. There's no private right of action or lawsuit. And at OSHA, over the last two years, and this is a pattern that we've seen in other agencies that enforce consumer protections or environmental environmental protections has scaled back on its enforcement activity. And it's not just that they are sort of scaling back on the kinds of inspections they do and the more impactful inspections. They are not hiring staff, though Congress gave them the money to hire staff. So this so the staff that's out there now, the inspectors, are stretched very thin. They have cut way back on press releases announcing when they do find companies. So in many cases, employers have stopped hearing about OSHA 
at all, which often just a press release can uh, enforce into an employer that may want to cut a corner that they should really sort of think about putting, you know, safety first. And I think the overall uh, implications of this, when you look at the data, is that OSHA is conducting the highest number of fatality investigations it has in a decade. So fatalities, worker fatalities, worker deaths on the job that are work-related and under OSHA seem to be rising. One of the things that stood out to me is that this isn't just a matter of um, budget cuts, though I think there have been cutbacks significantly in, in you know federal regulations overall, but appropriations have even in areas where they've stayed level, it seems like OSHA is systematically cutting back on what it does. Um, do you feel like this is part of a more systematic effort to fundamentally alter the way uh, the agency works? I mean, if it's not just an issue of fewer resources. Yes, I think this is a systematic way to weaken the agency. Congress did appropriate the same amount of money and even a little bit more for enforcement. But OSHA didn't replace any vacancies in the first sort of 10 months of the uh, Trump administration. And after this, the process has been incredibly slow, much slower than it was in previous administrations. I mean, I was in OSHA during the Obama administration and replacing people that left was really important because, again, as I said, OSHA is small. Federal OSHA only has about a thousand investigators. So if you start losing 10, 20, 30 investigators, you're really going to see the difference out in the field. And it's really important to prioritize hiring. But OSHA now has, and this is not, as you said, from budget cuts, they have the lowest number of inspectors on board than they've ever had in the 48-year history of the agency, lower than under Bush, lower than under Reagan. Seems like actually they're less public about releasing their data. I mean, you had to FOIA this data, right? So, and I believe that, you know, they've actually cut back on some of their reporting. Um, do you have just a sense of overall transparency, especially when it comes to how the agency interacts with the everyday public? Well, I think for the everyday worker, uh, the sort of biggest impact is that OSHA is really listening to, you know, big, powerful, big businesses that have told it to stop uh, putting the list of workers who died on the job on the homepage of uh, the website. So that's off. Uh, in addition, OSHA is issuing one third less press releases than it did on big enforcement cases. They just are not, you know, letting the public know who's getting cited and what for. And so I think, you know, if a worker is working for a company that m might have a, you know, tendency or might think about cutting corners on safety, there's no reminder anymore that OSHA is out there. You know, yeah. there is a law out there, but, you know, if people don't remind some employers, they're going to forget or they're going to try to cut corners and workers will pay the price. Yeah. Beyond OSHA's decline, there's an effort underway to undermine protections for even more workers, this time by targeting the gig economy. A separate investigation, also by the National Employment Law Project, has revealed that corporate lobbyists representing big on-demand service platforms like Uber, Lyft, and Instacart are seeking so-called carve-outs from federal labor law, which will allow their workers to be categorized as independent contractors, as many are now, rather than employees. The firms, which employ 
employed disproportionately black and Latino workers, typically, would be exempt from having to comply with minimum wage laws, scheduling regulations, unemployment benefits, and workplace safety regulations. If those companies succeed, we might soon be looking at a labor regulation regime in which workers are, on the one hand, subjected to increased danger and abuse due to the erosion of the existing workplace protection system, and still others are completely excluded from even those weakened regulations. These are the Uber drivers who aren't even entitled to a safe job under federal law because they're considered self-employed. There's also a strike potentially coming at the Community College of Philadelphia, where the faculty and staff union representing all full-time and part-time faculty and non-administrative staff has voted to strike possibly as soon as next week. I spoke with one of the union leaders about their struggle for fair pay at the city's only affordable higher education option for working people. My name is Junior Brainerd, and I'm co-president of the Faculty and Staff Federation at Community College of Philadelphia, and I'm also a full-time faculty member in the English department. So you all just voted to strike Mm -hmm. um, as we're talking last night, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so we had a a union meeting last night where 98% of our members voted to strike. So it was really overwhelming support for going on strike, and that's from all three of our bargaining units. We represent full-time faculty as well as part-time faculty, you know, adjuncts, as well as uh, a bargaining unit of support staff who work here at CCP, you know, everyone from housekeepers to the frontline clerks at records and registration up to IT and graphic design, as well as electricians and plumbers. So this was a... This is this is a really a unified decision with support from all three units. Sort of across the, the three units, what are the major areas of contention here and what are you pushing for? So um, one of the things we're fighting for are reasonable workloads and small classes. Um, we know that working conditions create the best student learning conditions. What the CCP administration has proposed is not a standard workload. Uh, we already teach more students um, in the number of classes we teach every semester than our surrounding community colleges at Monco and Bucks um, teach, even when they teach five classes. You know, we teach four courses a semester. So our, our class sizes are already higher than our, you know, other area institutions. And aside from that, increasing the workload of faculty is just not going to improve the quality of education here at CCP. It'll mean that faculty have less time and attention to give to students um, who need that to, to be successful. We're, we're also fighting for more support services for students. We want the college to invest in more counselors, more librarians, more advisors, uh, more faculty in our learning labs, because we know that um, those folks give students the, the support services that will allow them to graduate um, and be successful in what they want to do. When we're comparing to the surrounding counties, I assume that you teach more mm-hmm. students of color in Philadelphia than in Absolutely. County. Yes, okay. yeah. And and we have um you know, we're a community college in Philadelphia, which is the the nation's poorest big city. You know, we're yeah. we're dealing with you know, students who haven't necessarily had prior experiences that allow them to be successful in college. You know, we have uh-huh. first generation college students, um, who just need more support in order to be successful. And they can be yeah. successful, and we see them being successful, but they need more support. And and that's part of, you know, why we're fighting to, to keep the workload where it is and why we want more support services for students. It's also why we want a more racially and culturally diverse faculty 
um, because we know that diverse faculty improves retention and success for students of color. So, you know, if, we're, if we really want to talk about how to meet the needs of our students, that's also essential. Uh, another another issue that's really um, critical to us right now um, is that we are opposed to uh, a management rights clause that the administration has proposed that would undermine our job security, um, give us less control of our classrooms, um, and ultimately, you know, eat at our academic freedom. And we we know that, you know, we need to have a say in the educational decisions that are made at this institution, and that. Um, we want to preserve job security for faculty so we can't be fired over our views or the subject matter that we're teaching. We want to be able to advocate for our students, to challenge our students, um, and we don't want to be in a position where we're, we're compromising the education our, our students get. You know, our, our president right now wants the ability to, to fire people for almost any reason, and we know that faculty are the experts on what happens in the classroom, not administrators. And then lastly, you know, I'll say that we are also fighting for salaries that keep up with our rising healthcare costs and that lift our, our lowest paid workers mm-hmm. out of poverty. We know that we have staff here who have worked here full time for 20 years who still qualify for food stamps, which is shameful. And, you know, this is a fight for a living wage, but it's also a fight for, you know, making sure that um, people are able to work one job and support themselves and their families. You know that um, so many of our staff um, and faculty as well are work two, you know, two or three jobs, and and so right now part of the problem with the offer on the table from the administration is that at the same time they offer us a tiny raise, they're also demanding that we contribute more to our health care, kind of taking the raise away with the other hand. So for us, I would say those those are the main issues that are on the table right now. Um, we made a pre-strike offer to the CCP administration on Tuesday and actually made uh, additional concessions and said, if you would like to avoid a strike, here's the offer. You yeah. can come back to the table and negotiate, and we have not heard from them yet. You know, so, so I think we, you know, we're, we're waiting to actually call a strike just to see if they will come back to the table. But as you yeah. can see from the vote last night, you know, we're ready to go mm-hmm. out next week. As Trump doubles down in his war on immigration, labor leaders nationwide are making a strong push for protecting immigrant workers, advocating for immediate relief of those who are in danger of being deported under Trump's recent rollbacks of Bush and Obama-era protective programs for workers from El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Sudan, and Liberia. Dozens of unions, including Unite Here, United Auto Workers, and Communication Workers of America, along with the AFL-CIO, are pushing lawmakers to pass legislation that would extend temporary protected status, a form of relief from deportation that is granted on humanitarian grounds, usually like a natural disaster or other social crisis. And they want an extension of deferred action for childhood arrivals, which has shielded many undocumented youth from deportation since Obama's tenure. And there's a similar protective program for Liberian immigrants known as Deferred Enforced Departure, which Trump just renewed, but they have been pushing for that as well, and they see the recent renewal as perhaps a good milestone in this broader fight. Altogether, more than a million people, including hundreds of thousands of youth and students and many union workers plus countless families, would get extended protection under the legislation, which would be hopefully one step toward more comprehensive reforms to regularize immigration status for millions without a green card. 
Although any immigration reform will be an uphill battle in this Congress, there's a clear case to be made for these workers, whose families will be essentially made undocumented solely due to Trump's reversal of longstanding protections that have allowed hundreds of thousands of immigrants to work legally and to be safe from deportation. I spoke with Neri Martinez, a bartender in Las Vegas and member of Unite Here Local 226. This act that they're passing along, it means a lot for me. It means a hope. A hope um, not just for me, for my family, and for a lot of families out there that are like the same way I, like me. It means like, you know, we can uh, keep all families together. It means like we can keep contributing to this country. Uh, what I mean is like paying taxes, uh, you know, working uh, legally and support my family economical and you know this, this like I say is a big hope for us to be uh to not be in the shadow and waiting we you know like every night or every day we like we have like a, what's gonna happen we got nightmares like we don't know we don't know we don't have a future we don't have a vision because we don't know what's gonna happen you know what I mean and you know there's a lot of a lot of lives gonna change not just mine and a lot of uh, people out there that are in the same way, and my kids, especially my kids, that, are, that they are a citizenship, their life going to change too because I'm going to be here um, all the time support them to be a better person. What is your current legal status, and what are you afraid might change about it? I, I'm TPS. My wife is TPS holder as well. So if they don't pass any law like that or they decide to, well, they did already, so cut off the TPS the benefits. So what's going to happen is like, um, you know, my, uh, first of all, I'm going to lose my job. Then my, my family is going to fall apart because we don't know yet how we're going to deal this. Like if we're going to take the kids with us or they're going to stay here. But either way, it's going to be uh, um, like a break in the future of these mm-hmm. uh, kids that are a citizen, mm-hmm. American citizen. You were here before um, you had TPS, right? Um, how did your life change mm-hmm. in the U.S. from the time you didn't have TPS to the time that you got it later on? Oh, that's what helped me a lot. Like I say, I, you know, I was able to uh, to work legally. I was able to contribute in the taxes. Uh, even we don't get any uh, any of those back, but you know, we feel part of the of the of the USA. People, yeah. that's the right way to say. Yeah. And you know, like you do doing something for the country, like to thanks that to thanks people for giving the opportunity to work legally. But what I don't feel like right now is like I don't feel good about it. It's like you know they're taking away. Like if you give food to your kids, and then when they're gonna eat it, they take it off. That's what I feel right now. Like they give me a piece of bread, and now they take it back again. That was Neri Martinez, a member of Unite Here Local 226, talking about temporary protected status under Trump. Well, by now, everybody's heard of the Green New Deal. It is a new initiative put forward by progressive members of Congress to call for a dramatic transition of the entire country's economy towards a low-carbon future by 2030. It would demand that we dramatically change the way we produce, the way we consume, and the way we work. Many people on Capitol Hill have something to say about it, one way or the other, positively or negatively. 
we went to Los Angeles, where the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor just held a vote by its executive leadership board in which a resolution supporting the Green New Deal was passed unanimously. I spoke with Rusty Hicks, Secretary Treasurer of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, about what the Green New Deal means for Los Angeles, how Los Angeles County has already been starting its just transition to a greener economy, and generally the role of labor in the broader debate over environmental justice. Why don't you give us an overview of why you have decided to not only support a Green New Deal publicly, but to come up with a full, I believe, unanimously endorsed resolution to to get on board with the Green New Deal officially? Well, I think the resolution that we put forward is in many ways in line with the work that we've been doing in Los Angeles for quite some time, uh, tackling tough issues head-on by having a real conversation and not accepting the premise that we can have clean air and clean water or good jobs, but we can actually have both if we dare to <laughs> confront the real challenges that are in that are in front of us. And so this resolution, I think, speaks to what we have been doing for, for a long time, affirming that we need to have, that our communities deserve uh, and should have good quality jobs, that as we focus on facing the climate change challenge that we have in front of us, that we focus on career opportunities for previously disadvantaged communities and who are in many ways the most impacted by climate change. And at the same time, we're really going to be, labor should be a proactive um, and an important part of the conversation about how we address uh, a climate crisis uh, that we face. Uh, and so that's the I think the core of the resolution, which speaks to the work that's been going on in Los Angeles for quite some time. Can you give some examples maybe of how you've been implementing those principles in Los Angeles on the ground? Because I think most people understand the Green New Deal in pretty abstract kind of idealistic terms right now. But how might that look for uh, Union Local? I'll give two, two specific examples. One, which began taking place probably some five to seven years ago, and that is confronting the challenge of uh, misclassified uh, drivers uh, that move cargo in and out of the ports of Long Beach and uh, Los Angeles. There are over 10,000 of these drivers who work under really horrific conditions, uh, previously driving dirty trucks that obviously impact um, anyone and everyone that is within the vicinity of the corridor of these goods that are moving in and out of the port. And so uh, the labor movement came together with the environmental movement to say, how do we address both the environmental issues and the jobs issues and put forward a clean trucks program, which actually would have uh, exchanged dirty trucks for clean trucks and also uh, ensured that uh, w we would see drivers be classified as employees in which they would have had the uh, you know quality benefits connected to being an employee and not being a misclassified independent contractor. Uh, that was a bold uh, proposal, a bold measure that really sought to address 
two important issues um, in, in Southern California. Um, the proposal ended up being tied up in court, and the clean trucks part uh, of that measure remained the uh, worker component uh, of that policy did not move forward. But I think it speaks to the need for bold action and forward-thinking proposals to actually address some of these real challenging uh, challenging issues. Uh, the second is an example in housing is actually connected to transit infrastructure. Uh, and that is, you know, we certainly have a large housing crisis here in Los Angeles and California in many ways around the country. And we also have a good jobs crisis, particularly in disadvantaged communities, communities of color in Southern California. And so we brought together affordable housing advocates, brought together uh, the building and construction trades, and crafted a deal that ensured that if a developer purchased a piece of property, wanted to see it rezoned to build housing that you know would ultimately increase the value of that property, we believe that we as the community should get something for that. We should get homes that we could actually afford, and we should get good jobs that you know, could feed uh, workers and their families. And so uh, we put forward a measure, Build Better LA, and uh, which ultimately became Measure JJJ uh, here in the city of Los Angeles, collected 100,000 signatures, put it on the ballot, passed it with 64% of the vote. And today you're actually seeing affordable housing being built and good jobs being um, created near transit hubs. So the places in which um, uh, disadvantaged communities are tr- going to truly benefit uh, from these good jobs, these affordable homes, being near transit, obviously connected to uh, the, the environmental challenges that we're, that we're facing. And so I think many of these issues are seen as uh, certainly intersectional and layered within each other. And I think you have to address them together and can't be, be viewing them in, in isolation. Um, and so those are two real-life examples where we've brought communities together who don't always see the world in the same way, have been able to make real progress in, uh, in Los Angeles as a result. And of course, you know, to pass a resolution on the top level is one thing, but actually getting rank-and-file workers on board with that sentiment is another. Do you find that when you talk to workers on the ground, they sort of get where you're coming from? Well, it's a great question. We recently actually mapped all of our members uh, in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles County, and we found that many of our members, uh, even those who are in good jobs, live in impacted communities. Uh, dense urban areas experiencing the real impacts of climate change. And therefore, I think the rank-and-file member or the worker who is simply trying to put food on their table, trying to provide for themselves and their families, trying to get a decent education for their kids, trying to find a home they can actually afford, understand when presented with the facts of the challenge that we face uh, recognize that we we can't wait, that we have to face um, this this challenge head on, 
Uh, and we have to do it by being thoughtful uh, and then we have to be strategic. Um, but we can, you know, uh, meet and face the challenge that's uh, that's in front of us. And so the, the issues that have been raised are valid when you are talking about transitioning from one kind of economy to another. There's obviously valid concerns that are raised connected to that. Um, and I think what we are putting forward is not a yeah, but or an or. It's a and. Yes, concerns have been raised and they are important. And we need to also talk about communities that are impacted. We also need to talk about how the labor movement is a part of addressing this real challenge uh, that we face. There has been strong support among some labor activists for initiatives like the Green New Deal over the years um, that's been partially offset by the fact that not every labor union has gotten on board. The AFL-CAO famously supported the Keystone XL pipeline, which became sort of this enormous wedge issue. Why don't you think other labor unions or labor organizations maybe aren't jumping on this as readily as, as Los Angeles is? Well, that's a question that you would have to pose uh, to them. Yes. I, I would only I would only say that I think that Los Angeles is simply providing real life examples of ways in which you can bring people together to solve big problems. And we believe that it's the only way in which you can do it. I think we also have a recognition that we understand that we have to move away from a fossil fuel economy into a renewable economy. And so the question is, how do we ensure that all communities benefit from that? Not just those that, you know, happen to be at the right place at the right time, but this should be a transition for the many, not just the, the lucky chosen few. I mean, we we have a uh, an opportunity to re-energize our economy by creating good jobs that address climate change. And that's uh, an exciting opportunity, uh, an exciting challenge that we, this generation, gets the opportunity to, to tackle. Uh, and I think Los Angeles is simply showing real-life examples about how to do it. Going back to the specific Green New Deal resolution, it didn't really get into the nitty-gritty of policymaking, probably deliberately, but you know, it did speak to how different sectors of the economy would be engaged and sort of portended some of the massive social investments that would be needed to carry out a plan like this. Did you see anything in that manifesto that stuck out to you in terms of something that Los Angeles County is particularly poised to take advantage of, whether it's, you know, but I don't know, more hope for community development block grants or, you know, renewable tax credits or something like that? I'll be honest, I, I haven't looked at the proposal from that uh, vantage point. Um, certainly, Los Angeles is well positioned, uh, California is well positioned to be an example of how to actually implement um, a Green New Deal or something that is 
similar to it. And I, I do think that many of the issues that have been raised have been dramatized uh, by um, Republicans and conservatives in, in the House and the Senate who have sought to uh, attack the proposal, attack the resolution by providing all sorts of, uh, frankly, outlandish examples of of what's going to happen to uh, you know the United States if in fact we address um, uh, you know the challenges facing our our, our planet, and so I, I don't take seriously some of the criticisms that have been raised from Republicans who are you know climate change deniers in uh, in in many respects, and so but to the point of of California and and Los Angeles. You know, I think we've got the opportunity to be the example uh, to the rest of the country. You know, you've got a, you know, here in Los Angeles, got a, you know, a county of uh, 10 million people, um, a region of, you know, 15 million people, and dense urban areas where we are already experiencing real uh, impacts of climate change, whether it's, Bigger storms that we're getting, um, bigger fires in the summer, uh, asthma rates in um, major parts of our our communities. Um, I think we've uh, got the opportunity to be the example uh, to the rest of the country on how you implement, how you make real um, uh, something like a Green New Deal. Along with things like Green New Deal, the labor movement increasingly focuses on something called the just transition. There's been an extensive investigation into whether or not things like the fashion industry can become lots less wasteful, could reduce its carbon footprint, and also provide equity for the global South countries. Do initiatives like that excite you? Do they make you wary, perhaps, that this is biting off more than labor can chew? Well. I don't. I don't believe it's biting off more than we can chew. It's. I don't believe we have a choice. Uh, we recognize, certainly here in Los Angeles, recognize that a. We have to have a movement away from the fossil industry, the fracking industry. Uh, does that happen tomorrow? No. Uh, but does it happen over time? Yes. Does it have to happen quickly? Yes. And if we're going to do that. We have to ensure that working people are at the center of that conversation, not solely um, as to the lives that are impacted by that specific transition, um, but also the economy uh, that is impacted by that transition. There are, there are certainly a host of opportunities um, uh, with new industries and new segments of the, of the economy that are created. As a result of this transition, we have an obligation to uh, make sure that those workers that are directly impacted by a transition uh, and potentially negatively impacted by a transition, if we don't take real measures to um, to ensure that that doesn't doesn't happen. Um, and so, I think it's whether it's a big bite or a small bite, uh, it's a bite we can't afford not uh, not to take. What do you think is the appropriate role of the state 
in policing this kind of stuff and ensuring that the U.S. isn't just repeating its mistakes? Well, I think as we talk about good jobs and um, addressing climate change, um, I think we also have to remember who actually makes the economy work. Many of those workers are invisible. They are forgotten. They are unseen in many ways. And so I think as we talk about addressing climate change, we have to remember um, the workers that are a part of the climate change in industry today. We in California say that we proudly recycle, uh, and yet we generally forget about the folks that uh, work under horrific conditions for virtually nothing to actually sort through all of our recycled goods. We certainly love to drive electric vehicles when we can, but we conveniently overlook the you know, auto workers uh, who are seeing increasing injury rates and declining wages on Tesla's assembly lines right here in, in California. We talked about housing. You know, as we advocate for building cheaper housing faster, we, we forget about the immigrant laborers who bear the brunt of that progress. With low wages and back-breaking work, uh, that's all too prevalent in residential construction industry. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that there is only one demographic group in America for whom on-the-job death rates are actually increasing, and that's Latino laborers in residential construction. And so, you know, I think the local municipalities and state um, enforcement agencies uh, can play an important role in helping to police those industries that do not have are not highly unionized, do not have a collective voice uh, that historically has addressed some of those uh, some of those challenges. Uh, we've put in place strong um, wage enforcement provisions here in um, uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, we've worked with our labor commissioner uh, at the state level uh, to to ensure that we ensure jobs are are as safe as they as they possibly can be. So I think uh, California can be uh, an example as to how we ensure safe workplaces for, for all workers. Some of the, um, the measures that have been kicked around surrounding the Green New Deal has been like things like a carbon tax, which um, ultimately can be arguably seen as um, regressive for consumers, and that might create some friction down the line. Well, I, I do think that um, we, I think there has to be clarity about the role of lawmakers and the role of, uh, of advocates. Um, it is uh, the lawmakers' responsibility to sort through the, the legislation side, the resolution side of this. Uh, I believe the labor movement, environmental activists, um, workers and disadvantaged communities uh, have the responsibility to build the power to ensure that we push lawmakers to act and to act now. Um, and so whether there's a 
you know, a commission, whether it's one idea or the other. I think what we are hearing and what we are calling, what we are calling for is for action on this important issue in a way that is thoughtful and strategic and benefits all communities. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we, uh, I think everything has to be on the table. I think we have some hard choices in front of us. Um, and there is no, you know, magic bullet, magic solution for facing this issue. Uh, I think it's going to take a, a, a series of proposals that interact with one another in order to get us to where we where we need to go. Um, and so I think everything at, at this point in time is is uh, um, is on the table and should be on the table. Uh, that is in line with the core principles of ensuring good quality jobs, not just for those that might be created, but for those who are transitioning to a new industry, that we're supporting disadvantaged uh, communities in this process, but we're proactively facing uh, the challenge of of climate change uh, in a way that works for everybody. One of the things that the Green New Deal might promise is green jobs for the next generation, right? Um, you know, it's not necessarily the case that green jobs can completely replace incumbent jobs in industries. And I, I guess I was wondering if, given the experience of LA, do you have any specific examples of ways in which this has been able to take place effectively? Yeah, I certainly think that uh, we we are experiencing um, a low unemployment rate uh, at the moment. Um, although I do think there are particular communities where unemployment is significantly higher, and there's a lot of uh, of our workforce that has has uh, workers who have fallen out of the technical workforce. Um, but I do think that is uh, certainly the the future of work. Uh, the conversation around the future of work, uh, the conversation around technology and automation um, is something that I think the labor movement is uh, is confronting in a big way, um, as I know everyone is in many ways around the world. Uh, we're, we're dealing with that issue in, um, in our ports. We're dealing with that issue in entertainment. We're dealing with that issue in, in goods movement. Uh, we're even dealing with that issue in, in healthcare. Um, there are industries that are growing dramatically, um, even here in, in Southern California, and I know in many ways around the country. Uh, and so we, I think we have a, a, an opportunity to focus on those, those industries that are, are growing to ensure that we are providing the most number of people, the highest quality jobs, uh, jobs possible. So I I, uh, I will admit that I do not have the solution when it comes to uh, that challenge, but I certainly recognize its uh, its importance. How does this mesh with some of the Los Angeles Fed's other initiatives that are aimed at delivering a more just, sustainable labor system for workers, especially as they relate to more direct, you know, bread and butter contract issues? You know, what do you think is one way to speak to some of those issues in a way that can get the public's buy-in, um, especially for those who remain 
skeptical and may not see any particular point in signing on to something with the Green New Deal because they feel like they're living in the here and now. Yeah, I think uh, Los Angeles has a, a number of uh, priorities and projects that are that are in line with uh, the principles uh, of a Green New Deal. Um, so we we have uh, been focused on ensuring quality jobs for disadvantaged communities, particularly the African-American community within the public sector, both in the city and the county uh, here in uh, here in Los Angeles. Uh, we conducted a significant amount of research in partnership with, with the Black Workers Center and uh, the Advancement Project and, um, and others uh, to put forward a report about the opportunity to ensure that the African-American community in Los Angeles continues to have uh, access to uh, good quality jobs within the public sector. Uh, our 501c3 pro- programmatic partner, the um, Miguel Contreras Foundation, actually has a program for formerly incarcerated women and men to transition them into good uh, jobs within the construction industry. It's a 12-month, uh, 12-week program um, where um, formerly incarcerated folks are trained and prepared to go into the construction trade. Today, we have more than 100 formerly incarcerated women and men who are on a construction site and on a pathway to a good union job. Uh, we have received uh, an investment from the, the New, New World Foundation uh, out of New York uh, to actually expand that program to service women, to service immigrants and refugees, along with the formerly incarcerated and transition that program into new industries, healthcare, hospitality, goods movement, um, entertainment. Um, th- these, these sectors are critical to our region, uh, but also we're making sure that uh, disadvantaged communities that are in many ways impacted uh, within Los Angeles actually have access to those good quality jobs. It's not set up for <laughs> today uh, the um, you know a Green New Deal uh, scenario, but I believe it's a model that can be replicated uh, to ensure a just transition for workers here and in many ways around the country. The National AFL-CIO um, issued a letter expressing some skepticism towards the Green New Deal and signaling that perhaps they weren't they weren't particularly in favor. Uh, such drastic measures. What do you think about that gradualistic approach? And were you perhaps disappointed in some ways that that the AFL-CAO did not sort of full-throatedly endorse this? Or can you kind of understand why they were reluctant to? Well, I would say that uh, the letter uh, that was uh, re- recently released was from a committee, the Energy Committee of the AFL-CIO. And the concerns that they raised were, you know, uh, at, at their core, are valid valid issues and, and valid uh, concerns. Um, I think what we are putting forward is um, a uh, broader view of the challenge that we face and essentially saying that Los Angeles is a place that the country can look to uh, as to how to address some of our most uh, 
uh, complex problems um, in a way that actually benefits all workers, uh, not just those that have the benefit of a union, but those that don't have the benefit of a union. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the concerns that are being raised are, are um, you know, certainly valid, and our resolution that we put forward is just to simply um, present uh, a number of other important considerations uh, that the labor movement uh, is supportive of. And lastly, since we are talking about advocating on behalf of working class communities here, in your fantasy land, how would you like to see something like the Green New Deal paid for? Um, you know, we've uh, talked about taxes and um, some people want to see a huge wealth sort of surtax um, layered over a, a much more intense progressive taxation system. Some people are saying that we should directly go after corporations and make polluters pay for this. Um, do you have any ideas about that? Is that something that labor is also concerned with as part of the just transition? I certainly think we, over the last two decades, decade in particular, we have seen large concentrations of wealth in ways in which, uh, you know, we, we've not seen in more than 100 years in, in this country. And therefore, I think we have to look at what are the factors that created that wealth and how do we ensure that, um, that there's an opportunity for those who, who truly, uh, through their blood, sweat, and tears, <laughs> create that wealth, get some benefit from it. And so I think everything should be on the table. I certainly think and everyone should pay their fair share. Uh, and I know that working people have been putting their shoulder to the wheel uh, to create wealth in this country at an astonishing rate. While wages have been stagnant, productivity has dramatically increased, and yet the uh, growth in our economy has been concentrated at the top. Um, and therefore, working people should get some benefit from the wealth that they've they've created. Um, and I think we we have to put everything on the table uh, to ensure that we get an economy that actually works for everybody. That was Rusty Hicks of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor speaking about the Green New Deal. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. I'm a big fan of the new Our Economy section on open democracy, and today I wanted to talk about a piece that, while targeting the UK, has plenty to offer for American readers as well. It's by Will Strong of the Autonomy Think Tank, and it's called Work and Free Time, A New Social Settlement. It's a blueprint for a world, well, at first a country, where everyone works less, where work is paid, paid fairly, and people are supported when they don't work, and where technology is used for the benefit of working people and the planet. You know, that whole climate catastrophe thing. Will writes, quote, A vision for the future of work must have the values of freedom, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Real freedom in this sense means the capacity to have a dignified life outside of wage dependency, outside of the worst effects of the workplace, and outside gender-defined work roles as much as possible. 
Broadly conceived, then, the move towards a healthier and more sustainable work culture is the move towards a politics of free time. End quote. Raises and bonuses at work could be claimed in time rather than money, because, as he notes, using your raise to reduce your working week effectively increases your previous hourly rate and expands your free time. He also raises questions of working time that involve things like the commute. The average worker, he notes, spends a total of 27 working days worth commuting to and from work, and more of those commutes are very, very long commutes of over two hours, as gentrification, of course, makes cities unaffordable for all of the wealth, all but the wealthiest. Over three million UK workers face commutes of over two hours. The EU, well, we won't get into that, already has a ruling that travel time constitutes work for workers without fixed or habitual places of work. But this principle, he argues, could be extended. He also argues for setting up a ministry of labor, quote, with a specific working time team would embed the initiative into the architecture of government itself. The ministry would be in charge of overseeing shorter working week policy, among other labor issues. Medium term, it would manage the project of achieving a UK four day full time working week without a loss of pay within a given period, e.g. five to seven years. Building on the European Working Time Directive, the ministry could manage a new UK Working Time Directive that would decrease annually. The Ministry of Labor would regularly draw on relevant expertise concerning the technological, financial, and legal instruments that can be leveraged to facilitate this aim. End quote. There is much more in this piece, from universal basic income and basic services to technology and decarbonizing the economy. I urge you all to read it and think about it. There's a lot there if we let go of the idea that people really love work so much they'll do anything in order to have a job. My pick for this episode is Jane McAlevey, friend of the podcast, in Jacobin. It's called Organizing to Win a Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is a sweeping plan to change the way our economy and society work in order to protect ourselves from and mitigate the impacts of climate change by 2030. It is huge, lacks detail, we have no idea how to pay for it, and is bound to be viciously opposed by industry every step of the way. But that's exactly why it's a good idea, why it's so important, and why we can't afford to ignore it simply by dismissing it as too idealistic, according to Jane McLeavy. It's not so much a plan, but a prompt to get the rest of us to figure out the brass tacks of how to decarbonize our economy before it's too late. And McAlvey believes that labor is in a perfect position to do so. Noting that the AFL-CAO has regrettably expressed skepticism towards the Green New Deal, McAlvey argues it simply doesn't matter that everyone on the left rejects the divisive frame of jobs versus environment. The left has yet to prove it can move from rhetoric to reality about green jobs, unquote. So to get from point A to point B, McAlvey calls for a militant organizing effort on a grander scale than practically any union battle to date. In other words, treating the campaign like the toughest contract fight ever. She writes, quote, Our side needs to get used to the military language because what we've been doing, being polite and going to big orderly marches, isn't saving the planet or creating a fair and just economy, and it's wishful thinking to imagine otherwise. So environmental activists may actually have a lot to learn from labor as well. Many insist that getting policy passed should be a key priority because organizing is slow, often disorganized, and messy, and they do have a point. But 
Even with the 2030 deadline looming, McAlvey argues that, quote, recent victories show that it's possible to build serious power from the ground up in far less time than the Green New Deal's 2030 deadline requires. And it's critical that we seize the moment now. She notes victories with teacher-led campaigns in Chicago, West Virginia, and Los Angeles. In West Virginia, Wildcat teacher strike actually directly confronted the climate crisis because their strike led to a breakthrough in state government that not only won a better contract for the teachers, but also broke the longstanding bond between the legislature and the lobby of King Cole. Meanwhile, teachers going on strike in California mobilized against Wall Street, challenging the economic power structure that has captured government and undermine public education and weakened democracy overall. McAlevey quotes Vincent Alvarez, president of the New York City Labor Council, who believes there's more for labor to unite around than to be divided over when it comes to responding to climate change. Quote, rather than focusing on the 10% of the issues that are divisive, such as the Keystone Pipeline and fracking, the issues that have garnered the most media attention in the climate fight thus far, it makes more sense to start with the 90% of issues that environmentalists and unions can easily agree on, including infrastructure, public transport, and energy production, unquote. Yet for all the criticism that labor has weathered for refusing to sacrifice jobs and unionized industries in order to tackle climate change, McAlvey notes that environmentalists have in parallel also pursued a narrowly environmentally focused agenda that borders on myopia without linking it to a broader program of economic justice. A case in point is the Keystone XL pipeline, which became an iconic wedge issue a few years ago. In the battle over plans to build a giant oil pipeline running across Canada and the U.S., militant environmentalists did everything they could to block the effort, and labor unions actually, in many cases, rallied on the side of industry, hoping to get dibs on the union jobs that were promised by the developers. In the end, the project ended up collapsing into a whole bloody mess. But the whole point of the Green New Deal is to fuse together these two seemingly contradictory elements, seeking an economic plan in which environmental concerns cannot be seen as an ancillary issue, but rather as a front and center priority for all working people. Because if we don't have our health, if we don't have the natural resources that we rely on to survive, then our jobs aren't worth very much, are they? McAlevey notes one promising model for a green labor plan on the state level in New York. It came in the wake of Superstorm Sandy, which devastated homes and damaged infrastructure across the coast. The unions managed to negotiate a recovery plan that coupled major investment in revamping and upgrading infrastructure and the power grid for climate resilience, while also securing high-quality union jobs for local workers. And it was all wrapped around a broad agenda of shifting the state's energy sources towards renewables by 2035. That same kind of broad-based approach, flexible in practice but uncompromising in principle, reflects the ethos that a green labor movement requires as it embarks on one of the most monumental ecological, social, and economic crises of our time. That's why labor should take inspiration from the biggest show of defiance we've seen on climate change in recent weeks. It was a wave of student strikes against climate change in which thousands of students worldwide walked out of school to protest their political leaders' inaction on climate. Imagine if those were the regular kind of strikes. Imagine if we had labor strikes around the world on a comparable scale. If labor can come around to the idea that the struggle for climate justice is also a struggle for labor power, for the empowerment of working class communities, then we'd see the Green New Deal as the first salvo in our biggest contract battle yet. Not for a union contract, but for a whole new social contract. 
And that's it for this episode of Belabored. You can check out all of our past archived shows at descentmagazine.org. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Please give us a shout out on social media and get in touch if you are organizing a strike action near you, if you're going on strike for climate change or for anything else for that matter. Or if anything at work is making you really angry, get in touch. You can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good and see you in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.